Bibles, if you would please, and open them to 1 John chapter 2. Uh, tonight is the first Wednesday night of the new year, and it's good to be in church on Wednesday night, and I love Wednesday nights. I, I think it is absolutely vital to the growth of the church. Now, I grew up in church, and, and my background um, was such that we, we didn't believe that you could be in church too much. We went to church a lot. Uh, we went to church four times on Sunday, the Sunday school, the the uh, uh, regular services. Then at night we had training union or we had youth department, had the Wednesday night services, and then we had two times per year where we have two weeks of revival preceded by one week of prayer meetings. And then there were the church fellowships and the conferences and and uh, the the youth rallies and all of those things. We were going to church all of the time. And it makes me just sad that church is really not a part of people's lives much anymore. It's hard to get people to come out more than one time uh, to church a week, and sometimes you can't even get them out for that. And I think that Christians, I mean, the testimony that that we have about the church and our church attendance has really contributed to what the world thinks about the church as well. If we don't think it's important, if God's people don't think it's important, then then don't think that people in the world are ever going to think that going to church is really a significant issue. But it is. It is especially for God's people. And the lack of people going to church, I think, has really uh, contributed to the demise of doctrinal ministries. And that's because you simply can't give people what they need to know in one hour or less a week. You just can't do it. And so what you end up with, well, you start out with spiritual babies. That's what everybody is when they come to Christ, a spiritual baby. And if you don't have time to teach people, they're going to stay spiritual babies. So we really do, we really do need to go to church in order to develop into maturity as believers. Now, one of the things that I thought that I might do is give up Wednesday night preaching and uh, maybe go to some other kind of format, which I don't think was, would necessarily be wrong, Maybe we would have um, small groups or something like that on a Wednesday night and do a different type of teaching. But I'm just a little bit too stubborn for some reason. It's hard for me to give up Wednesday night preaching. And, and when, you're, when you're getting together here and, and, you're, and you're doing three sermons a week, sometimes it can be a little bit grueling trying to keep up with that schedule and, and do the studying that's necessary and putting the messages together because I don't have anybody to do my research for me. And I don't. Have, and that's not like a big ministry where uh, sometimes they have somebody else that does the outlines for the pastor. So all he has to do is fill in the blanks. And so uh, it's not like that. I have to do the work myself. So you know, we'll just grow together. We'll just stay right in here and work at it. And we'll we'll read and teach and and do it and and learn more about the Bible. Well, tonight I want to call your attention to the last part of chapter two in the Epistle of First John. And we're looking at verses uh, 28 and 29, and also down into verse number, uh, verses 1 through 3 of the third chapter, and we really should take all of this together, because it all goes together. So if you look at uh, the 28th verse in the second chapter, and now little children abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. 
Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. I am just really excited about this portion of Scripture. I'm really looking forward to uh, preaching these messages on these particular verses. And my subject for um, these messages is hope and holiness. And the outline for it is found in verse number 28. And now, little children, abide in him that when he shall appear we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. There are three words that stand out in this verse, and my thanks to the Apostle John for doing the alliteration for us. And the three words are abide, appear, and ashamed. You know, I've been asked a lot of times, uh, how do you get so much out of just a few scriptures, and how do you get the outlines, and how do you pick the subject for the messages? Well, sometimes they just show up like they do here. Uh, The key verse of the section is verse number 28, and it provides the outline for us. Abide, appear, and ashamed. And so that's what I do when I'm looking for a sermon. I look for that key verse, and then I start to put together an outline to put together a skeletal outline first, and I start to put the meat on that skeleton. And sometimes it grows into a body that's really fat, and sometimes it grows into a body that's a little bit skinny. And this is one of those times where it grows into a fat body because it's going to take three sermons for us to get through all of this. So we're going to start off with the first part of this. We already have our outline for us, and the first thought is abide, abiding in Christ. And so we'll take three weeks to explain this part of the Scripture, and we're going to focus tonight on the very first part, and now, little children, abide in him. Now, there are usually four, five, six, seven commentators that I check with whenever I'm reading for sermons, and almost without exception, those particular ones that I use, they're going to be pretty much in agreement on, on the scriptures, and sometimes they, they will even quote each other, and, and that gets kind of hard sometimes when you're, when you're going through all of this material, and you're looking for something fresh and new, and you find out all the commentators are quoting each other. So they're all saying exactly the same thing. Well, this is one of the times where they say pretty much the same thing. And uh, one of the things they say is that these verses absolutely do belong together. Verses 28 and 29 belong with these first three verses of chapter 3, and there really shouldn't be a chapter division here. Now, we know that the Bible is the infallible, inspired Word of God, But what you find on printed pages of the Bible is not always what God has said or what God has done. Uh, The chapter divisions, the verse divisions did not come from God. And some of you have study Bibles, and you got all your notes in your study Bibles. That didn't come from God. Now, the men who wrote those things are, and put the chapter divisions in, the verse divisions, and, and wrote the notes in many of your Bibles, they're very helpful to us, and they're good men, and they've studied the Scriptures, and we thank the Lord for them, but they're not inspired. Uh, the Holy Spirit does not, did not inspire them to do those things, like, like it was to write, uh, have the apostles and others to write the Scripture. And so when you see the chapter divisions sometimes... And you see verse divisions and things like that. Those weren't in the original scriptures. And so men have put those in. And sometimes they separate the thoughts from one another that should go together. And that's what we find here. There really shouldn't be a chapter division at all. But in this, in this section, 
we, we do find encouragement to abide in Christ. And the reason that we have this encouragement, according to the apostle, is because Christ is coming again. And he's going to appear. And since he's going to appear, then we need to be sure that we live in such a way that we're not ashamed when Christ comes. So the overall arching principle that we find in this part of the Scripture is the hope that Christians have that Christ will come and then the holiness that should be produced from that hope. So where does it begin? Well, it starts with abiding in Christ. We have to be true and faithful. We must live for Christ. We must be close to him. The hope of Christ's return should gender in us a real difference and make us something different than we were before. And really, knowing that Christ is going to come back makes a real difference in the personal peace that you have in very difficult times. Living in the reality of Christ's return makes us different people. Now, if you'll just go back in your Bible a few pages to Second Peter chapter 3, back towards the front, you'll see how that Peter nails this down very succinctly. How should you live in the light of Christ's return? Well, look at verse number 10 in chapter 2 in Peter, or chapter 3, rather, in Second Peter. And we're going to uh, come back to this verse, or these verses some more, before we finish out this study. But uh, starting in that 10th verse, Peter says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. Verse number 11, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? And I know you understand the word conversation there means the manner of our lives, the way that we live. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Now, do you see what he's telling us here? We do know that Christ is coming back. And we also know that there's going to be a cataclysmic end to this world. And those who don't know Christ are going to be caught in that, in that uh, catastrophic ending. And so Peter says, be found in him in peace. And how will we be found that way? The answer is by abiding in him. And when you do, what will you be? He says, you'll be without spot and blameless. In other words, when you are abiding in him, you will be holy. And so when you abide in Christ, you are holy because you can't get close to Christ without being holy. On the third part of the message in a a couple of weeks, we're going to spend some time speaking on the issue of holiness. And that seems to be a forgotten principle with God's people today. There isn't much holiness So I'm going to warn you ahead of time that we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about holiness and purity in the Christian life and and what are the demands that God makes of his people. Now we notice here what John says in the first verse of of chapter 3. He says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Now here, John gives the distinguishing factor between those that are lost and those that are redeemed. The Father has bestowed his love upon us. And we're different. 
because that love has done something to us. Now, this, this is really a very critical place in Scripture, and it's something that you really, really do need to get in your mind as a defining theological principle. I'm going to try to help you to understand what I mean by that in just a moment. A moment. Now, I'm sure that you understand, or you remember this, this verse. Everybody knows it in John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, do you know what happens when you, when, when, you, when you take the love of God in John 3.16 and you make that indiscriminate for people that are in hell as well as people that are in heaven? Do you know what happens when you do that? You actually destroy 1 John 3 verse 1. And that's because those two verses are speaking of the same love. And this love that God bestows makes a decided difference in people. This is saving love that he's speaking about. He's not talking about a defeated love, and he's not talking about rejected love. Uh, the love of Christ in 1 John 3, 1 is what causes a person to come to Christ so that we can abide in him. Now, we have to start with that. We have, we have to start with our salvation because you can't abide in Christ unless you get into Christ in the first place. So this starts with, then, salvation by grace. John says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Now, you see the word that? What does that mean? Well, I, I don't want to give an English lesson tonight, but we do understand what that means. It actually means in order that. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us in order that we may be called the sons of God. And so that tells us that the love of God produces something in us. It's bestowed upon us in order that we can become the sons of God. And the love of God that we find in John 3.16 is not any different. God loves the world in order that we would not perish but have everlasting life. So the love of God bestowed does the same in both verses. Now, I hope that you get the impact of that statement because you couldn't have God loving people in hell because God's love bestowed is actually what produces sons of God. Now, John would say that in another way in John chapter 1, verse 12 in the gospel account. He says that God has given us power to become the sons of God. So his love is demonstrated by giving us power to become his sons. So salvation comes by the love of God. Now, if you want to talk about how, how God desires that all people would be saved, I agree with you. I agree with God's will of desire. There is no desire in God that anyone should die and go to hell. God doesn't want people to go to hell. He doesn't want them to continue in their sins because sin is against him. Sin is against his holiness. So God is never going to desire for people to go to hell. And so I agree with that will of desire. And if you want to extend God's love in that area, then I can agree with that. But what I can't agree with is that it equates to a saving love so that one in hell is as much the object of God's love as one that's in heaven. And, it, and it's neither the same for, for those who will never believe in Christ and for those who will believe in Christ. You see, the love of God in John 3.16 and the love of God in 1 John 3.1 will always produce sons of God. And if that's not true, then God loves people right into hell. And so you'd have to say that God lo doesn't love them enough to keep them out of hell. Now, what kind of love is that? Well, that's not a love at all. And I suppose that there were some people who argue about that, and they would say, well, it really means that God loves you enough that he'll let you die and go to hell if that's what you want to do. 
But what parent loves his child so much that if he wants to go out and play on Highway 101 in the middle of the day, that he lets him do it? Your love doesn't let let your child do that. Your love prevents your child from doing that. And so should we think that God's love would be any different, that God's love is inferior to ours? No, what God does is he enlightens us through his love in order that we would make the right decision. And the scripture says he draws us with those cords of love. And what he does is he changes our will in order that we might choose him. And that's what he does in his grace. Now, we notice, secondly, that salvation by grace denies the universal fatherhood of God. Now, 1 John 3, verse 1 uh, shows a difference in people. There is no such thing as the universal fatherhood of God. Some are sons of God and some are not. And the distinction is very clear here that those who are not God's children, do not recognize Christ as the Savior. And he also says, neither do they recognize that we're different from them. The world did not know him, John says. Therefore, the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. When Jesus came, there were people said, said that, well, isn't that the carpenter's son? I mean, doesn't he have those brothers and sisters that, that we know? We're acquainted with them. And isn't this the same guy that came from Nazareth? Grew up over there. Isn't that the same fellow? And they didn't really recognize that there was any difference in Jesus and them. But there were some who did see it. And Jesus asked his disciples, Whom say ye that I am? And Peter answered that question, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And what does John say here? Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we might become the sons of God. And that is exactly what happened to Peter. God's love produced in Peter the confession of faith. God had revealed it to him by his grace, and that's the only way that a person's ever going to come into Christ. And that is when God's love is bestowed, faith is produced. See, God's love is not empty, and God's love is never in vain. It produces sons of God. And so to abide in Christ, you have to get into him first. Some are outside of Christ. They're not sons of God. And so salvation by God's grace denies the universal fatherhood of God. Grace isn't needed if everybody is already a son of God. Now, secondly, salvation by grace affirms the need for the new birth. The love of God is bestowed in order that we should be called the sons of God. So something changes. When God's love is bestowed, something changes. Now, we were one way before, and, and then we're another way afterwards. And Paul makes this clear in Ephesians, that all of this happens because of grace, and that we are all alike before grace. Now, I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 2, and here we find how the Scriptures tie the love and the grace of God together. And here we can see in this scripture that we all start out exactly the same. We are all in the same condition, but we don't end up in the same condition. Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, 
and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, listen, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved. Now there you'll see that verse number 3 says that all of us were the same. All of us walked in the lust of the flesh. We all fulfilled the desires of the flesh. We were all by nature the children of wrath. And then verse number 4 says, But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. Now can you fit that in with John 3, uh, 1 John 3, 1? The love that God has for us did something in us. It produced something in us. We were dead in sins. But then we were quickened and we were made alive by grace ye are saved. Now, by our natural birth, we're all dead in sins. Natural birth cannot produce anything but spiritually dead people. We're physically alive, but we're spiritually dead. We're, we're dead to God. And so there is no spiritual activity in a person. There is no spiritual life in us. And for spiritual life to be there, to have spiritual activity, there has to be new life. And so the spiritually dead must come alive. And how does God do that? Well, he lovingly puts his life into us. And how does he do it? Well, we go back to 1 John, and John has the answer in verse number 29 of the second chapter. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. So we're born of God. And that's the Holy Spirit's work, to bring us out of spiritual death into spiritual life. Now, we were born into spiritual life, all of us are the same as creatures of God, but not all of, us, not all of us are the same as the sons of God because the sons of God have God's love bestowed upon them and they become Christians, they become God's own, they become sons through the new birth. And so again, we see we have to get into Christ. And there's a difference between the two types of people here. One is designated as the world and the other is called the sons of God. And the difference between those two is God's love bestowed. Now, I hope you can see by that that this must be discriminating. If salvation is by grace, meaning that it's without human merit, then God's love cannot be turned into saving love by us. God's love produces the same effect in one as it does in the other. And so if salvation doesn't turn on us, which, what, which, which is what grace prevents, then it must be God's love that makes the difference. And so, therefore, God's love bestowed always produces sons of God. Now, next we have instruction by grace. Instruction by grace is the holiness of a Christian's life. Now, Paul wrote to Titus, and he combined instruction and holiness with the hope of Christ's coming. And he says in Titus chapter 2, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. So salvation is by grace, and that brings us into Christ. But grace doesn't stop there. Grace also instructs us how to stay in Christ. Now, the command here is very clear, that once we are in Christ, we must abide in him. Now, if that was automatic, so that once we're saved, that nothing more is required of us, then John would not have said, he would not have commanded us, abide in him. So those words don't have any meaning. The encouragement doesn't mean anything at all 
if there isn't something further required from us. Now, you need to listen to me very carefully because this is greatly misunderstood. We wholeheartedly affirm that regeneration is monergistic. Now, salvation is, is it by God's grace, and that's a work of God. That's performed above our comprehension. And the new birth is simultaneous with repentance and faith, but it is a monergistic work of God. The Spirit works in us as he wills, and we don't do anything to draw the Holy Spirit to us. We can't. The Spirit draws us to God. Now, John 3, 8 affirms this when it says that the Holy Spirit moves like the wind. We don't perceive that the Holy Spirit is there except by the effect that he produces. It's like the leaves rustle on the trees when the wind blows. We don't see the wind, but we see the effect of the wind. That's the movement of the leaves in the trees. And likewise, when the Spirit begins to move in a person's heart, we don't see him, we don't perceive him, except by one thing, and that is repentance and faith. We know that the Spirit's been there because we're brought to repentance and faith. Now, having said that, our continuance in Christ is synergistic. That means that it requires something from us. Now, that's not the same as saying that we're saved by works. We, salvation is by grace. But it is saying that the Christian life has to be further instructed by grace in order for us to remain in Christ. And if that's not true, then we wouldn't have the command to abide. Now, here's the part that's greatly misunderstood because you have some people that do believe in eternal security, but they don't believe in the Christian's perseverance. And they say, oh, well, you believe that you're going to lose your salvation if you don't persevere. And they say, well, the Bible doesn't teach perseverance in the faith. It teaches that we are preserved in the faith. And I read this very thing not long ago in one of the Baptist papers, uh, to which I would reply, well, are you saying then that a Christian needs not persevere? That it's not necessary for us to persevere in our faith? Is that what the Scriptures teach? Well, let's see what the Bible says about it. What does the Bible say about our perseverance? And let's see what we can make out of these Scriptures. I've got a list of them for you. First, we start with John eight thirty one. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if... Ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. John 15, 4, Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. John 15, 6, If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered, and men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. John 15, verse 9, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you, continue ye. In my love. Matthew 10 22, and ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. 1 Corinthians 5 2, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory that which I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. 1 Corinthians 15 58, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Colossians 1, and 23. In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and reprovable, unreprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven. Whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Now, that's just a sampling of the many passages in Scripture that teach perseverance. And it's very clear to us that this is a requirement of God's people. We must persevere. So how can anybody say there is no such requirement? Well, we'd have to go back. And I don't want to confuse you back there on the, on the uh, PowerPoint there, Corey, so don't worry about me right now. But we go back to John fifteen four, and we would say, Christ says here, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except that it abide in the vine or not. No more can ye accept ye abide in me. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, or not. And men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. John fifteen nine, As the Father hath loved me, so I have loved you. Continue in my love, or not. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved, or he that endureth, or maybe not, to the end shall be saved. You see how it twists the Scriptures around when you say there is no perseverance? I mean, it's very clear to us. The Bible teaches this doctrine. Now, let me read something to you from the historic professions of the faith, and I'm I'm sticking here with the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. And there are many people that deny perseverance, and they say that, well, Baptists have never historically believed in a doctrine like that. Well, let me pull out one historic confession, and I promise you, I know what I'm talking about here. I challenge anybody to pull up historic Baptist confession of faith who does not agree with what I'm going to read to you right now. This is chapter 17 of the 1689 Second London Confession of Faith, The Perseverance of the Saints. Those whom God hath accepted in the beloved, this is article, part of the, the first part of the article, those whom God hath accepted in the beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, and given the precious faith of his elect unto, can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved, seeing the gifts and callings of God are without repentance, whence he still begets and nourishes them in faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the spirits unto immortality. And though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet they shall never be able to take them off that foundation and the rock by which faith they are fastened upon, Notwithstanding, through unbelief and the temptations of Satan, the sensible side of the light and the love of God may for a time be clouded and obscured from them. Yet he is still the same, and they shall be sure to be kept by the power of God unto salvation, where they shall enjoy their purchased possession, they being engraven upon the palms of his hands and their names having been written in the book of life from all eternity." Number two, this perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, the unchangeable flowing from the unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ in union with him, the oath of God, the abiding of the Spirit, and the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace from all which ariseth also the certainty and the infallibility thereof. 
Number three, and though they may through the temptation of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them and the neglect of means of their preservation fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit, come to have their graces and comforts impaired, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize other and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. Yet shall they renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. Now what I've heard is that there are many who argue against the doctrine and they say, well, you really don't believe in the preservation of the saints. You believe that you will lose your salvation if you don't persevere. Now if you listen to everything that I just read there, you're not going to find an ounce of, of give on this doctrine of preservation. I mean, absolutely, once you have trusted in Christ, you will, you will be saved. You're never going to lose your salvation. But they also mention in the same scripture, perseverance. And it's a great statement because it's biblical. And if you want a copy of this original, I'd be glad to give it to you with all the scriptural proofs. But I want to call your attention for just a moment to the second part of the statement, which says, this perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ in union with him, the oath of God, the abiding of his spirit, and the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace from all which ariseth all the certainty and infallibility thereof. I wish I had time to preach every statement and what's made there because all of that's great. It's all significant. Let me just focus on two statements. Our perseverance does not depend upon our free will. Now, what does that mean? Well, well, don't get all bent out of shape right now over the argument of free will. Don't, Don't worry about that. All it simply means is that our will does not lead us into perseverance. The will of God shapes our will so that a true believer will always persevere. And so those that argue against the doctrine, they miss that very vital point of understanding. They need to very carefully read what the historic confessions of faith say because it's very clear to us that God shapes our will so it's a guarantee that we do persevere. Now they would argue that we believe that our continuance in a state of holiness is by human effort and thus we would lose our salvation and be lost. Salvation is by works, etc., 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 I'd say do your homework a little bit. Do your homework and read what the confessions actually say and what the doctrine really teaches. Now, the second statement concerns eternal election, and it says that perseverance is based upon the immutable decree of election flowing from the love of God the Father. Now, it's not surprising that you find people who deny perseverance and they also deny eternal election. And here's what happens. When you cut the legs out from under perseverance, when you take God's election out from under it, then you're naturally going to deny perseverance as a, that, that perseverance would be a necessary consequence of our election. You see, Bible doctrine is not going to fit together unless you have all the parts. And so if you deny the eternal election, then you're going to deny perseverance too. And that's very, very dangerous because you see what happens? What happens is... That you see all the scriptures that I just read, that whole list of scriptures, now you're going to have to pit scripture against scripture to try to figure out how you're going to make that work. You're going to say there's no perseverance? Well, I gave you a list of probably 10. I didn't count them all, how many there were. But I gave you that list, and that's just a start on it. I mean, this is just, 
pounded into us throughout the scriptures about, about our holiness because we must persevere in the faith. It's over and over and over in scripture. So how are you going to explain all those scriptures that we read? What are you going to do with John? What are you going to do with the Apostle John? He says, he, and he teaches perseverance in verse 19. If you want to look at first chapter 2, First John chapter 2 again, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not all of us. For if they had been of us, they no doubt would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Now that is nothing but perseverance. You see, this is one of the major points that you find in First John. How, what, what, are we subject, what a subject are we studying? How are you going to tell a false Christian from a true one? Isn't that what the whole thing has been about? We've been talking about and talking about how are you going to tell a false Christian from a true one? And so you yank perseverance out of 1 John and you have to rip out the second chapter. Because our text verse we read says, and now little children abide in him. And that becomes a totally nonsensical statement if there is no doctrine of perseverance in the Bible. Now let me read to you what one author says, which would be our viewpoint exactly, or my viewpoint. This is one of the great wonders of biblical truth that on the one hand, we are secure in the eternal promise and purpose and plan of God, but not apart from our own faithfulness. And the warnings and the pleas and the calls to believers to be steadfast, immovable, faithful, loyal, unwavering, continuing in the faith, abiding in the faith, those calls and those warnings prompt the heart. Then, energized by the Holy Spirit, become the means by which we are secured. That's why you not only have promises of the eternality of our salvation, but commands to remain, to abide, to hold on, and to be unwavering in our devotion to truth. And I would wholeheartedly agree with that statement. Don't be troubled about this, because on the one hand, we're told that we will be preserved always in our salvation. On the other hand, the Bible says in order to be, you have to remain faithful. And you don't turn that around and say, well, I'm faithful by my works, because here we see we are energized by the Holy Spirit to our faithfulness. And so that becomes the means of our abiding in grace. And then, when we're in Christ, we abide by further, further instruction in grace. So we grow in the grace of the Lord. We persevere by the attachment that we have to Christ. It can never be broken And the means of abiding in Christ is the faithfulness enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you find fault with any of those statements, then all I can say is, well, let's sit down and see what the Bible says again. Let's just read through the Scriptures and see what they say. Now, one more statement I want to read and we'll be through. All the great doctrines of the Bible have this sort of inscrutable reality in them that everything that happens to us in terms of redemptive purpose, everything that happens in our salvation, whether it is our justification, our sanctification, our glorification, all of it depends upon the power and purpose of God, and yet not apart from our faith and our abiding and our behaving in a godly fashion. You were saved one day, if you're saved, because you believed. You are sanctified because you obey. That's why the New Testament is full of commands for people to believe and be saved and full of commands for believers to be obedient to the Word of God. And so, folks, we abide in Christ because we have this steadfast hope that Jesus is going to come. He's coming to take us to heaven. And it's in that hope that we abide. And if we don't have that hope, we don't need to abide in Christ. 
And then we abide in holiness because Peter says, Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. And mark that one down because it's just one more verse on perseverance. If ye do these things, you shall never fall. So abiding in Christ is proof that we are born-again sons of God. So as John would put it here and what he's trying to argue for us, who is a Christian and who is not? Well, the Christians are the ones that always persevere in the faith because they always abide in Christ. And that's how you tell who's saved and who's not. And the whole, the whole book is, is churning this up and doing it over and over and over again, tests which prove that you are or you are not truly in the faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word tonight. We thank you, Lord, for just great truths that we find here and how they speak to our hearts. And, Lord, uh, we see in every place that we go that our dependence is totally upon you in every area. It's totally upon you. We can never look to ourselves for anything. So our strength to carry on, our strength to do your work, our strength to abide in you comes from the power enabled by the Holy Spirit. Lord, bless our people tonight. Help us to understand your word better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.